0: I think this is the second month we've actually had an afternoon service after quite a while when we've put them off for various reasons. Now trying to get back into the swing of things. I remember when I first started this about a year or more ago, it was my intention to really make a lot of progress through the book of the Psalms and, I don't know, just to develop a lot of great thoughts out of the book of the Psalms. Well, I've not gotten very far at this point. Um, this morning, this evening, or this afternoon. What time is it? We're going to look at Psalm 6. So if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 6, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to say some things about the Psalms in general, and then come to look at this Psalm in particular. And some of the things I'm going to say in general about the Psalm have everything to do with the way some of the statements of this Psalm are to be, at least in my mind, to be read and understood. You know, verse 1 of the uh, Hebrew Bible uh, is the what we call the superscription. So uh, we have a 10-verse psalm, but in the Hebrew Bible it's 11 verses because verse 1 is the, uh, is the superscription. In fact, in the case of Qumran, when they found Old Testament texts that were like a, a millennium older than the existing text of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic Text, um, those documents really show... That the um, that the superscriptions were probably not late uh, editions. They really did belong to at least a period of the composition of the psalm, or at least the collation of the psalms into a book, where the editors or the redactors, as they call them, they looked to put together. This was included. This was included from probably the earliest times, at least for the psalm being used for the purposes of uh, of the worship of God. As the book of the Psalms was used, and so um, I think it should be seen as part of the text. Even though a lot of the times these superscriptions, we just don't know what a lot of these words mean, but some of them have to do with musical direction that we just don't know exactly what they were saying. So it's a psalm that is directed to the choir master. So in the worship of the of the of the temple, uh, both the Temple in the days of Solomon, and later, when they came back from uh, Babylonian captivity and built the second temple, th- there were singers in the in the temple, and uh, these trained singers were taught how to sing the, these words, these psalms, in conjunction with the rest of the worship, and so there were these directions that were given to the leader, the choirmaster, the uh, what do they call them today? In these, the praise band leader, whatever. <laughs> worship leader, there we go, the worship leader is if worship only meant singing which is not a right idea worship is not just singing, but anyway that's so how it gets to be viewed today but anyway, so it's to the choir master with stringed instruments, so there was instrumental accompaniment to these psalms, according to the shemineth which is what we just don't know what that means some kind of a, a, a liturgical sort of term something that directed the way in which this psalm was supposed to be sung And then we're told it was a David Psalm, as most of those in this section are. Really from uh, Psalm 3 to Psalm 41, where this first book of the Psalms ends, they're all David Psalms except for one. One's not a David Psalm, but all the rest are David Psalms. And the second book also, most of them are David Psalms. So it's connected with David, David's reign. Um, Give ear to my words. I'm sorry. I'm in Psalm 5. Let me go back. Verse uh, 1 of uh, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, or in the grave, or in the place of the dead, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. We've been looking... On a number of occasions in the last couple of years at these Psalms, and really trying to discern uh, the way in which they were structured, how they were formed, and how they were used in the ancient worship of God's people, in the Old covenant, and as well as the way in which the New Testament church uh, tended to view them and to and to uh, read them and to sing them. And uh, it, it was it's my understanding that this fivefold book, of the Psalms it does correspond, as many of the early church writers said, to the fact that God gave to Moses the first the five books of the law. So you have five books of the law, and to David, the old writers would say, there would be the five books of the Psalms, and they're in five books of varying sizes. Apparently, in my estimation, to accord with the way in which the law is structured, so you have the first book of forty-one psalms, kind of corresponding to Genesis, the biggest book of the law, and then another section of psalms from Psalm forty-two to seventy-one, that is a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, less large, and uh, this Exodus is less large. You're going from fifty chapters to forty chapters. And then you go down to the book of Leviticus, which is the next book, and you have the smallest book of the of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. And um, you get 13 Psalms, I think, in there, and Leviticus is the smallest book of the law. And then you have the book of Numbers, again a little bit bigger, and you go from Psalm, um, Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. And then you have Deuteronomy, a larger book, and you have Psalm 108, 107 to Psalm 150. And it was meant to be read in accordance with a three-year program of reading. Fifty weeks in a year, and so it take you three years to sing the Psalms, as well as read the law on a triennial cycle, three years of, of readings. And I think that's one factor that really should factor in to our understanding of how the Psalms should be understood. Another thing that we looked at last time we were together is the history of the nation of Israel. Because in general, each of these five books do seem to correspond, at least in general, with a point in the history of the nation. That the first book, the first 41 Psalms, as well as the second book, the next 42 to 71, seem to correspond with the rise of the Davidic throne. They are mostly David Psalms. You come into Psalm, the third book and the fourth book, there's far less David Psalms. David Psalms pick up in book five, because the hope of another David is, I think, is there messianically. So you have more David Psalms in that section. But the whole picture is that at the, the end of the, that, that second book, you see that God is sending the nation into exile. Babylon is on their doorstep. The city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be gone, and there's lamentations that come at the end of that second book, that indicates where where are you? Where's the temple? Where where were you, Lord, when all these things occurred? Our nation is left devastated, and where are you, O oh God? And then you come into that uh, 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 third book where it's all lamentations about temple. Temple's gone. Temple's being destroyed, um, and uh, Again, that seems to be the period that you read about in things like the book of Jeremiah, some of the other prophets that uh, prophesied the captivity. And then you have in book 4, O Lord, you are a dwelling place in all generations. It's almost like we don't need a temple any longer, because we have God. We have God. They've been sent off into exile, into Babylon, but that doesn't mean God is confined to a temple made with hands. It doesn't mean that God's presence is not with his people in captivity. God is with his people. And so that's a period of the life of the nation very much in accord with their experience in captivity. And then with Psalm 108, you have the return to the land and the reestablishment of the kingdom, the reestablishment of the worship at the temple. And so I think you have that basic structure that we saw last time particularly looking at the seams that divide book 1 and 2, book 2 and 3, book 3 and 4, book 4 and 5 But there's one more thing There's one more thing. I think the way in which the Psalms were used in terms of coordinating it with the readings is one thing, factors in to the way we look at the book of the Psalms then again, we can't do this perfectly. It's just something that's a thought that needs to be in our minds as we study these books, and also the progress of the history of the nation, in the development of the Davidic kingdom, the destruction of the Davidic Kingdom, the exile, and then the return from exile. Those, there's, there's one more thing. And that one more thing is really present in the very title that is the superscription of this psalm that I read to you. There's directions to the choir master there's matters about stringed instruments there's something having to do with something called shimineth in which the psalms were sung in the context of the public worship of God's people so when we think of how the readings correlated with the readings from the law and the prophets or how the songs correlate with the history of the nation I think those things are there but remember these Psalms were put together for whatever they were composed, for whatever time, whatever period in Israel's history, when they're put together, and they're put into this book of songs. They were put together for the purposes of the public worship of God. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which the psalms have been read and theologians that come up with their various ideas of how the psalms are to be read. There's this wonderful school of German inquiry that came about in the 20th century connected with the name of Hermann Gunkel. There was another guy. I don't think he was German. I think he might have been Swedish perhaps. His name was Mowinkel. Anyway, these were two of the big, big heavy hitters of psalm studies back in the 20th century. I'm not sure that they have a great deal to offer us. But one of the things that was a big thing connected with these guys is what the Germans called Sieben in Liebitz. You know what that means in German speakers? Huh? Sieben in Liebitz. I think it's situation in life. Situation in life. The way that you study the Psalms, the way you figure them out, is you got to, what's the situation in the life of the person that can comprise these, these, these Psalms? And unless we have a superscription that gives us some sense of what's going on, what's the situation, what was the Psalmist experiencing, what was he going through, we really don't know. you have Psalm 3. It says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Ah, aha. At least early on in the way in which these psalms were compiled, it's to be given to understand that this was a psalm that was penned, associated with David, maybe um, written by David, and it had to do with the overturning of his kingdom when Absalom, his son, started a rebellion against him. David had to flee from Jerusalem. And so... You know something of the Seben in Leibitz, or whatever the thing is. The situation in life that is being viewed from that superscription. But most of these psalms don't have superscriptions. It has directions to the choir masters. It has the fact that it's a David psalm. But it doesn't say this happened when this happened and that happened in David's life. So, you know, we can speculate all day long. But I think one of the reasons that some of these, most of these psalms don't have such detailed background given is that they're general, and hence they apply generally to a whole swath of situations in life that well may be our situation. It could be well related to what we're going through because we're going through not the same thing. We don't know what exactly he was going through, what the pressures were upon him, but we're going through something similar. And these are so generally stated that we can really... Coordinated some, not so much with their situation in life, but our situation in life. How we come to read it as referring to the kind of things we're going through as we feel disciplined and rebuked and we feel troubled and we feel that our life is even jeopardized, that death may be at hand, that we are moaning In our weariness, that we're having sleepless nights when we're drenching our bed with our tears, when our eye is wasting away because of grief. Did I read the Psalm? I think I did, didn't I? I didn't. I did. Yeah. Well, that's what he's talking about. And he's talking about the fact that in this situation that is generally stated, we don't know the specifics, God was his helper. God was his refuge. He looked to God for relief, and he found in God relief. And so we're going to look at this Psalm and we are look at it in terms of the trouble, the trouble that this man experienced, or the troubles of life that come into the experience of God's people in a general way. And where do you go to find relief in an hour of trouble? Now, before we look at those things, I, I want to say that this historically is viewed as the first of seven penitential psalms. I don't remember exactly how far back that goes in church history, but somewhere along the lines somebody came up with a clever notion that there's some seven psalms of penitence that we have in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 6, is whoever came up with this, said this was the first, and then there's Psalm 32, 38, 51, 103, I'm sorry, one. 102? Okay, thank you. 102. Oh, you got a list in your Bible. Cool, cool. So I don't have to read my writing. <laughs> 130 and 143 are called the seven penitential psalms. Does anybody know what the problem is with calling these psalms penitential psalms? What do you think you're going to find in a penitential psalm? What would characterize something that's a penitential psalm? Who can tell me? Yes, we can. Okay, there's the asking of forgiveness. And along with the asking of forgiveness, there's the other part of it, which is? Mercy. Well, there's pleas for mercy, yes, but there is also... Repentance and sorrow. I'm sorry? Repentance and sorrow. Repentance and sorrow that's expressed in confessing, confession. Confessing one's sins. So there's the confession of sins, and there's a plea for mercy, or the plea for forgiveness. Do you see any confession of sin in uh, Psalm 6? any plea for forgiveness in Psalm 6, you would have to read it into it. You'd have to read it into the... um Sebin and Lieben of the situation in life that you think this man is going through um, and you'd reason out for oh look he's, uh, he's flooding his bed with tears I know what that is I've, I've flooded my bed with tears over my sins uh, many many times so I know exactly what he's experiencing he's experiencing deep contrition of heart he's, he's convicted of his sins he's, he's in great distress Over you're reading that into it don't you know because has anybody here ever drenched their bed with tears over other things over other reasons I think you have if you've experienced the grief of the loss of a loved one maybe the grief of the loss of a kingdom when your son inspires a rebellion against you I mean we don't know could have been this is written at that time that Psalm 3 was written in David's life but the point is we don't know but penitence does not seem to be at the forefront of the psalm Um, confession and request for forgiveness for sin is not found there. And because it gets viewed as a penitential psalm, you know what happens? Is that people look at this first um, prayer, uh, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, as if it was to say that I'm always being rebuked by God for my sin, and I'm always being disciplined for my sin. That all discipline, all Rebuke, all chastening, it's the old uh, rendering of the verse, is related to sin. And you know what? That's not true. Because the idea is not so much that you're getting rebuked for what is wrong, but you're being directed in the pathway of what is right. It's discipline that's training in the path that is good. And when God rebukes us, it's not always that he's taking us up to task for our positive sins. It may just be our general ignorance. You know, we're thinking thoughts that are just not correct. We get caught up in our own situation and we're forgetting this or we're forgetting that. And God comes with a timely word of rebuke and says, my son, have you not forgotten that? I've done this to the Egyptians and you should take solace and have encouragement for what I've done in history. It may be that's a kind of rebuke. There's all kinds of ways we rebuke that we're not calling people on the carpet for actual crimes. We're not saying you're guilty of something that you should feel about this big for. It's not to load you down with guilt. It may not be that this man is anything to be load, any guilt to be loaded down for. But he's experiencing the trials and the struggles and the troubles that's common to life in a fallen world. So I would not think of this in terms of a penitential psalm. I would think of this in terms of a, a lament. Uh, the term lament is the expression of someone's complaint or someone's concerns, bringing before God the whole list of troubles that we're going through in life, not necessarily charging ourselves or overly charging ourselves with wrong or criminality or or guilt, nor charging God with unfaithfulness, but just laying before him our troubles. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing. Um, He's in a fix. He's in a mess. He's in a situation that could well be jeopardizing his own life. Turn, O Lord, he says in verse 4, Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Rescue me. I'm in trouble. I may well be killed. As my, maybe Absalom is pursuing his rebellion. Maybe some other situation the psalmist is experiencing that we know nothing about is causing his life to run a risk. And he speaks about death in verse 5, which we'll get to in a moment. So, he needs deliverance. He's laying down before God the, the, the complaints, the troubles, the angst, the difficulties he's going through in life. And it's interesting what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Lord, remove... The rebukes or the chastisements or the discipline or the difficulties. He didn't say take them away. Lord, this is unjust. This is unfair. Why should I be experiencing such such things? He merely says, the discipline you're bringing, the rebukes that you're bringing, the things that you're looking to teach me in the midst of this hard and difficult situation, Lord, let it not be that this is a display of wrath or anger towards me but the display of the love of the Heavenly Father. That this is not the actions of an angry judge. This is not a God who's out to get me. This is not a God who's looking to crush me under his feet. This is not a God who's looking to hurt me and crush me. It's a God who's looking to cleanse me. A God who's looking to help me. It's a God who's looking to take this thing I'm going through and make it part of the whole mosaic of my life in which all things are working together for the good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose so Lord let this not be in anger at what I'm experiencing let this not be in wrath and let it be that I'm experiencing your graciousness the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger abundant in loving kindness and truth Lord let me see that side of your character that side of who you are That aspect of your countenance in which I see a smile and not a frown. I see um, your goodwill and your good intentions being towards me. So it's a whole question of his view of God. It's a whole question of how he sees himself in relationship to God. And there are a lot of people that look at their situation in life and say, aha, there it is. God's looking to get me. God's looking to get me. It's your grandmother telling you, Lightning is going to come out of heaven and strike you. God's going to strike you down. Tell me you didn't have a grandmother that told you that. <laughs> you you grew up in a really good family if you didn't have a grandmother that told you, or a great aunt, or someone along the line is going to tell you God's out to get you. God's going to get you. And we walk away with that notion that God exists to make my life horrific. God's just out to get me. This is a psalmist that says, Lord, let me not sink down into such depraved ideas about you to so misrepresent who you are in relationship to me. Help me to see the brightness of your countenance. Help me to see the reality of your love that I would know your grace for I'm languishing. I'm languishing. This is not easy. He's going through a difficult time. Now, there are a lot of people that read these words. The next words, it's in the end of verse 2, is heal me, O Lord. So there's a bunch of these requests. Don't rebuke me in anger. Don't discipline me in wrath. Be gracious to me. I'm languishing. Now heal me. Heal me. For my bones are troubled. And they say, Well, look, here's the problem. This man is sick. This man just got back from his doctor. His doctor said, "No hope, buddy. Sorry, you're on your way out. You better make sure your insurance is paid up, and you better make sure that uh, things are taken care of. That you've, you know, you've you've done all the last things needed because you're out of this world pretty soon." Again, no. It's not a question of physical, of a physical disease. Bones are troubled can be an expression of just the way we feel. Have you Ever gotten up in the morning and just not to be able to move? You're just so heavy. You just have a sense of being overwhelmed by the stuff of life, by the difficulties of life. As you get hard, you get out of bed, and you feel your bones are simply troubled. Again, we're psychosomatic beings. The way in which our soul responds to much of the troubles of life register in our bodies. I keep meaning to get a copy of that book that uh, has been very popular. That says, um, what's the title of it? The, the, the The body keeps the records, or something like that. The body, you know, it it says your, your, you know, the idea that your body is keeping the count. It's, it's, it's knowing the troubles and the difficulties of life is not just an experience of the soul. It's not just an experience of the life of the mind. It, It weighs down upon our physical being because we are body soul entities. And here you see the expression of that. And he needs healing it may be the healing of relationships it may be the healing of his kingdom it may be the healing of his own heart's relationship to his God or to other people but sin has come and it's brought its terrible troubles and it's brought its, its, its sicknesses, its disorders the things are not as they should have been if sin had not entered into the world and hence the stuff of the body affects the inner life as well my soul was also greatly troubled. Although there's some question as to whether the, the Hebrew word for soul, nephesh is really talking about the immaterial part of us at all. Again, the animals were living souls or living creatures, is Adam became a living soul, a living creature. And actually this word for the soul really has to do with the neck. It has to do with that part of the, the body in which we breathe in air and which our life is really dependent upon. And uh, you know, just as the just as the the Jews saw the emotions in in the gut in the stomach, uh, they see the very life of a person j- just in terms of the breathing apparatus, being able to inhale and exhale. When we say when somebody dies, they've expired. They've expired. There's no more breath in them. Well, the breath is taken in through the throat, and it may be that's what the expression is. This inward troubles of the heart affect the body. The outward expressions of bodily uh, uh, troubles affect the inner life as well. And again, he doesn't say, "Lord, remove this. Take this from me. This is too hard for me. I don't know how I'm going to get on with life as it is in this condition." But he does say, "How long?" He does say, "How long?" He doesn't say, "Lord, you're wrong in bringing this. Lord, you're unjust." But he does say, "How long? How long, Lord? That's a request to know. How long will this be sustained? When will I come to know?" the alleviation of these conditions. When will I know that the trial is at its end? And that's a legitimate prayer. That's a legitimate request. Again, it's not so much a question, Lord, I'm, I'm better than other people. I don't have a right to be treated that way. Everybody else can experience all the troubles of the world, but me, if you, if you, don't, you don't treat me like a royal king, then uh, you've broken a, a covenant. You've, uh, you've let me down. I have every reason to reproach you. No, it doesn't say that. To be afflicted with the troubles that are common to a fallen world is something we shouldn't be thinking is an act of express displeasure with you as an individual. It's just a reality that is life in a fallen world brings. And none of us are exempted from it. Christians have lost their homes when tornadoes have come through. They've lost their possessions. They've lost their lives. And it's not a question God is out to get them. It is a question that in the midst of the, of the trouble. The worshipper of God needs to know his smile. Needs to know that God is at work for good. And needs to know that these problems will be of short duration. And not be continual. And that's the joy of eternal life. That's the joy of knowing the presence of God. Because at least in the long term, it's going to be it's going to be wonderful the troubles of the world in another one of those spirituals soon will be over with the troubles of the world going to be with God the troubles of the world are going to end we used to say when I was young did we say 50 years from now it won't matter hey it's 50 years later (laughs) things still matter but maybe back then it was 100 years from now it won't matter or 50 years from now for us hey ain't going to matter ain't going to matter really yeah, want these troubles to be of short duration and so there is that cry Lord how long? Now he not say he gives an answer but he does make the request to know how long Lord give me relief in the sense that this is of short duration and then he says turn O oh Lord and deliver my life save me, rescue me for the sake of your steadfast love help me to see the reality of your never dying love of, of a love that sticks to the end and that will never let me go For the sake of that kind of love that you show is part of your character, help me to know the reality of your rescue. Now there are these words in verse 5 that are very troublesome in the minds of many believers. And they say, look, it says, there's no remembrance of God in death, which means... If we die, that's it. Those guys we were talking about this morning are right. As soon as you die, you go into non entity, you go into non existence. There is no afterlife. It says in Sheol, or the place of the dead, who will give you praise? Well, again, we need to remember that these are Psalms that were designed for worship. These were Psalms that were designed as expressions of the public worship of God, in which one of the great institutions of that public worship was that they would be the seasons of remembrance. That the people of Israel would recite the wonderful acts of God. The things that God did to their fathers in previous generations. The things that were not to be forgotten. And always to be brought before the remembrance of God's people. As suppose all of us were to die today. And there be none of us left. Would there be a Lord's Supper observed here? The first, second Sunday of the month? Do this in remembrance of me? There would be no one here that remembered, would remember Jesus in the way of Jesus' appointment. I think that's what's involved here. Is that the remembrance of God is a public exercise of the people of God, communally calling to mind the great things that God has done for them. Making that publicly known, praising God in the sanctuary to declare the mighty works of God. And here's a guy that was a leader in the nation. Here's a guy, the guy in forty-two, Psalm 42. Led the throng to the house of God. Leading them the worship of God. You take him out of the picture. Well, if it's David, you're not going to have song singers. You're not going to have these public worshipers that assist in the work. He instituted it. So you see, his life's important. It's important for the sake of this world. Not for the sake of what I'm going to know when I die. But what about the world or what they know? In the light of what I've been given to know that I can declare, I can express, I can encourage others to express about the mighty things of God that are declared in the public worship of God. You get the picture? I think that's what this is about. Don't forget, this is a songbook. It's a songbook meant for public singing. It's a songbook in which the exercises of public worship involve the public remembrance of God. Lord, let me live for the Sabbath day. Let me live for the Lord's day. Let me live for the day of worship that I might remember you in the midst of your people. Call upon my children and my grandchildren to remember you. Call upon my fellow citizens to remember you. Because when I'm dead, and I'm not doing it, it's not saying there's no life after death. It's not saying there's no persistence of individual existence after death. He's saying there's no public worship of God in the sanctuary when you die. I mean, when you say it, it gets obvious, but you know, a lot of people stumble over these words. So he wants to continue to live for the sake of unborn generations, perhaps, for the sake of the public worship of God continuing. And him being a participant in that public worship of God. But instead of getting to maybe fulfill his desire with respect to the public worship of God, he just looks at his own individual life and his weariness, his moaning, tears upon his bed, couch drenched with weeping. There's trouble, there's trouble at every turn. And he doesn't want... The remembrance of God to be the remembrance of a God who simply causes his people to languish. But a God who brings those times and seasons of languishing for a greater end and a greater purpose. That we would learn the lessons of his grace in a difficult hour and come through the trial purified because God's purpose in the trial is not to crush us. The purpose in the trial is to cleanse us. It's to teach us. It's to bring us to new awarenesses and new understandings and new commitments and new devotion, and then coming out of the troubles to see the mighty hand of God in bringing relief. So then, his focus turns from his troubles. It turns from all the possibilities of he's looking to avoid, and he turns to his enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of, of evil. Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. I'm not wept alone. My bed is filled with my tears, but I'm not alone. God is with me. He's heard my plea. He accepts my prayers. And the enemies that rejoice over me, the enemies that say there's no help for you in God, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to be ashamed and greatly troubled. Because my troubles won't last forever. My troubles are but a light affliction. It's a momentary thing. And the troubles of this present time, Paul says, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. We'll get glory. His enemies will get shame. They shall turn back and put the shame in a moment. And again, I don't think he's gloating over his enemies. But he's just aware that the folly of his enemies will lead to a far greater loss a far greater burden a far greater languishing a far greater devastation than anything he is called upon to endure for a brief season of life so as we come away from the psalm hey our troubles are real we can sing this psalm without feeling we are guilty of unbelief in any shape or form even though largely it's a downer, but yet it's a realistic song. We experience the discipline of the Lord. We receive rebukes. We receive times of life where things are not easy. When things when our, our, our hearts and minds, our souls are languishing, our bones are troubled, our grief is great. And yet in the midst of it all we have a God who will lift the burden and will bring relief we'll live to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and even if we should leave this world in great distress the end of that even too will be to see his face to see his face to be with Christ in glory so don't don't envy the wicked (laughs) glory in your true state and condition which though outwardly speaking might not be much inwardly speaking is heirs of glory heirs of God joint heirs with Christ the reality that we possess are the solid joys and the lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know may God be pleased to bless his word let's go to him in prayer Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. We're thankful for the encouragements of this psalm. We pray that these things we looked at will be things we would reflect upon and even pray this psalm when it's appropriate to do so and do it with understanding and do it with great sense of consolation that you provide. Hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.